Uh, good afternoon. Um, we're in John 7.53 to John 8, verse 11. Let's read the scriptures first and then we'll examine them together. Interesting passage of scripture. So John 7.53 and I'm reading from the ESV and if you have as well, you will see in capital letters, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. The woman caught in adultery. Verse 53, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have a charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. We know the scripture very well, but as, 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 a, as a preamble, if you like, and it's important maybe... I could have spent a lot of time on this, but I don't like necessarily to get into too much textual, textual criticism in the pulpit. But the first Greek New Testament was published in 1516. The invention of the printing presses was a big deal, and this was a landmark achievement, the first printed Greek New Testament. It was put together by a, a Dutch scholar, Desiv Desiderius Erasmus, and it was a monumental, significant feat of scholarship. Erasmus's Greek New Testament, which has sub subsequently been referred to as the Textus Receptus, which is not a dinosaur, but simply means the received text, and it became the basis for most Reformation-era translations, 16th to 17th century, the King James Bible, the authorised version, comes from the Textus Receptus. Many of you would have grown up with the King James. I love the King James. I love its language. I love its history. And since Erasmus, scholars have found more ancient manuscripts, you know, that could be disputed, based on better texts, clearer texts, traditions. Again, that, that, that's argued. But consequently... As a result of that, there are certain verses you find in the King James that you do not find in contemporary English translations. From the NASB to the ESV. Some of the most famous examples are the ending of the Lord's Prayer. Have you ever thought about that? You probably do know this in the King James. It does say what we say when we say the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The ESV simply says, and lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. 1 John 5 verse 7, the King James. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. 
in the ESV, 1 John 5 verse 7, for there are three that testify. You could look to the ending of Mark's Gospel, Mark 16. Did Mark's Gospel end at verse 8 or at verse 20? And perhaps the most famous of the verses you do not find or you find in the ESV or the King James is this story of the woman caught in, caught in adultery from John 7.53 through John 8.11. So the question is, is John 7.53 through John 8.11 an original part of John's Gospel? Almost certainly the answer is no. The story is true. It has the ring of, of authenticity of something that would have happened. But the overwhelming majority of scholars say that this text, though it speaks to true things about Jesus, wasn't originally a part of the inspired scriptures. I can quote to you a number of biblical scholars, conservatives who believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. Edward Clink is the is this is my favorite go-to commentary on john's gospel says that the text's critical ev evidence is strong this pericope was almost certainly not in the original version of the gospel of john yet i believe that this is an authentic incident from the life of jesus christ it may not have been written by john but it was attached here by the early church and it's so parallel and important to the way that jesus christ t treats social outcasts like this when we see how Jesus treated Mary Magdalene, when we see how he treats others, how he healed lepers, how he... What do we learn from this incident? I still think that's really important. So I'm preaching it unashamedly because this is a story and illustration of what the Bible teaches about something that the Old Messiah Testament predicted about the Messiah. Matthew 12, verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. What does that mean? Well, Jesus Christ combines passion and justice so perfectly the world has never seen its like. Jesus is not a compromise between strong and tender, but he's just and righteous to the nth degree, and he's compassionate and gentle to the nth degree. The, the traits do not compete in Christ. They unite in him. Jesus Christ, absolute power and majesty. He will bring forth justice to victory he will win over evil he's won over evil but at the same time he's so compassionate and tender that a bruised heart a broken heart a flickering soul in his hands will not be harmed but rather healed and that is illustrated perfectly in the way jesus christ treats this woman we see here that he deals gently with her that he and that teaches us that he deals gently with us and that teaches us that we deal gently with one another the problem, we're told twice that this woman was caught in the very act. The King James says she was taken in adultery. She would have been caught. According to the Jewish law, she couldn't have been charged unless at least two eyewitnesses saw her actually taken in the very act of adultery. So she was caught. Jesus has not been asked about her guilt. That has been ascertained. Jesus has been asked, questioned about her penalty. And the religious leaders come and quote the Old Testament. Leviticus 20 verse 10, it'll be in the notes that I sent through. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbour, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. And they point out that the Mosaic law says adultery means any sexual activity outside marriage 
is punishable by execution. So they come to trap Jesus. And this is why it is such a deadly trap. They think they've got him. They bring this woman to Jesus and what they want to know is what will Jesus do. They think that they've got him. Locked on the horns of a dilemma. Because the Jewish law demanded she be put to death for committing adultery. The Roman law said that if the Jews sought to impose capital punishment they were breaking Roman law. So not only that, the difference between Roman law and the Jewish law, but they knew, they know that Jesus Christ taught compassion, grace, forgiveness and tenderness. Jesus said that his kingdom is characterised and entered by grace and forgiveness. So ultimately they think he's stuck between two concerns. On the one hand, the life of this woman. On the other hand, the law of Moses. And what Jesus does is truly remarkable. He does two things. And right there you have a summary of ministry. He disturbs the comfortable, number one. And secondly, he comforts the disturbed. So firstly, he disturbs the comfortable this way. He turns to the religious leaders and says, let him who's without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Before we look at that, just very quickly, in why and what did Jesus write on the ground? What did he scribble with his finger in the dust? It doesn't tell us. And as far as we know, can see it absolutely has nothing to do with the story. He scribbles in the dust there waiting and he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her, which we know it well, and he carries on scribbling in the dust. Well, what was he scribbling? The answer is nobody knows, and if anyone tells you, they don't. I don't know anyone who claims he doesn't. A commentator once wrote, as an historical commentator, I'm perfectly convinced that whatever the Gospels are, they're not legends. They're not artistic enough. They don't build up to things. Look at the story of Jesus scribbling in the dust with the woman taken in adultery. Nothing comes of the scribbling. It adds nothing to the story. And the art of inventing little irrelevant details to make an imaginary scene more convincing is purely modern art. Surely the only explanation of this passage is that the drama rarely happened. The author put it in because he saw it. There's no other explanation why it's there. The reason the story is there is somebody was there, witnessed it and recorded it. There is no reason for it to be there. It doesn't contribute otherwise. But what Jesus says is remarkable. He does not say that a stone should not be thrown. He essentially says, throw a stone if you will, but make sure the one who throws it is without sin. He does not deny there needs to be punishment. Instead, what Jesus Christ does, and it is very wise, that he basically makes this case. In any case, you're disqualified from being witnesses or executioners. Now, often we see this story played out in our mind's eye as if the scribes and the Pharisees were bloodthirsty, wanting to kill a helpless woman. That may or may not have been the case. But in the text, the woman is not their prey. Jesus is. Verse 6. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Their reason for bringing her to Jesus is to get Jesus into trouble. They're thinking surely that Jesus, this great teacher of mercy, the friend of sinners and tax collectors, is not going to stone this woman. But if he doesn't, he's violating the law of Moses. So, what are you going to do, Jesus? Are you going to disagree with the law of Moses? You pick up the stone, you throw it at her, you're going to run foul of the Romans. Well, Jesus knows the Old Testament. 
And when he asks the question rather than makes the statement in verse 7, let him who is without stone among you be the first to throw a stone at her, is an allusion again to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 13 verse 9, Deuteronomy 17 verse 7, where it states that the one who bears witness against the guilty party must be the first person to throw the stone. That is what the law of Moses required. If you're going to bring a judgment and allegation against this person, you must not have been guilty of it yourself because you're just a witness of it, not a perpetrator in it. And two, you must have eyewitness testimony to there pick up this stone and say, I was the witness and I will throw the first stone. Jesus finds a way out of the trap where he does not say law of Moses, we do not care about the law of Moses. But what he does do is to bring the rest of the law of Moses to bear upon the situation and on their conscience. What he's asking is really twofold. Number one, who saw this? Because it is the witness who is the first to cast the stone. Now you've dragged her up saying she was caught in the act, but who here has witnessed it? And two, he's asking the relevant question, who here is also innocent of this sin? Now, Jesus is not suggesting that the courts have no place to judge people or there is no place to issue reproof for sin. But rem remember the striking piece of evidence. Where is the man? He's nowhere to be found. If there was a witness, really somebody caught her in the act. Now, it is not to doubt that it happened somewhere down the line, but this crowd here, these scribes and Pharisees, if they witnessed it themselves, where is the man? Where is he gone? No, 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 Jesus is perfectly puncturing their pretension. They're not interested in justice. They're so interested in justice, then which of them has borne witness to this great sin? And if they have, which of them entirely is free from it themselves? So famously, they walk away. Jesus Christ disturbs the comfortable, but secondly, Jesus Christ comforts the disturbed. He doesn't water down the standard. He doesn't condemn the woman. He doesn't condone the sin. The world says you're free to go. The Bible says you're free to go and be changed. Remember the cry in Exodus was not just let my people go, but let my people go into the wilderness that they may serve me and worship the living God. Jesus does not condemn her, but he doesn't condone sin. Go and sin no more. Now, I would certainly like to believe and think there is a reason that, it, that this is absolutely a true story. But the point being is whether it happened or not, we have ample evidence in the rest of Scripture that the very truth set forward in this story can be pressed home upon our hearts. I may not preach John 8, the woman caught in adultery with all the force of scripture. I would use it as a likely example of something that actually happened. It is attested in other documents in church history as a story that has resonance. But we cannot know for sure. But if you love the truth that is in the text, I want you to have absolute confidence that you do not need the story to have all that the story tells us. It is all over scripture and it is clear as anywhere in Romans 8. 1 to 5, there is therefore now no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh 
but according to the Spirit. We see here the same beautiful picture that you've grown to love in the woman caught in adultery. The same beautiful gospel picture painted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 1 to 5 in three steps. Number one, brothers and sisters, we are not condemned. If you're in Christ, your sins are washed away. We are forgiven and God himself will not pick up the stone to hurl at us. We are not condemned and we're not in chains. That is what Romans teaches us. We've been set free in Christ Jesus. Free not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. So in Christ, we're not condemned. In Christ, we're not in chains. And thirdly, you mustn't lose this. We are not the same, which is the story of the woman caught in adultery. And the picture of the gospel here in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jesus Christ is the shepherd. He is the brother. He is the husband. He is the hen who gathers his chickens under his wings. He weeps over Jerusalem, the ones who are going to kill him, and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you. Jesus is the perfect physician of the soul who distinguishes between the sin and the sinner. The beams of his love shrinks the way, the tumour of sin from this woman so she can walk free. What are the implications of this? They are vast. Well, number one, if you're a bruised person, and we all are, you need to come to Jesus. If you're bruised today, you need to come to Jesus. What does it mean to come to him? Look at the text. It means to stop your blame shifting. Jesus will have nothing of the victim mentality. Look at him broken and bleeding on the cross. So also he would say to you, can say to you, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What does it mean to come to Jesus? The Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin. Confess your sin. Look to Jesus who paid the penalty for your sin and do his bidding. Say to Jesus like she does, Lord, no blame shifting. See him broken on the cross for you. So also he can say to you, neither do I condemn you. And his grace will come into your life and will melt you in the best of ways. So by his grace, you can do his bidding. Jesus Christ will shrink the tumours of sin in your life away. I was thinking again of the prodigal son and I was so struck by the similar nature of this scripture and that scripture. When the prodigal, the young man goes away from the father and squanders his inheritance. When he comes to his senses, he says, well, wait a minute. What am I doing in my father's house? There is bread and then to spare. Is there anyone watching who is saying I cannot come to Jesus because I'm too bruised? I'm black and blue. I'm too messed up. My life is a train wreck. I cannot go to him. You need to come to your senses if you think you are too whatever for him. Jesus Christ knows and with him there is forgiveness and to spare. With him there is power and to spare. I might have to give up what I enjoy doing. You will. But with him there is joy and to spare. Well, I'm so confused. With him there is wisdom and then to spare. A bruised reed he will not break. 
a smouldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast him out. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. If you are bruised, you have to go. When, when, secondly, whenever Jesus Christ gives you a word of grace, it also includes a challenge to obedience and to growth. He doesn't just say, neither do I condemn ye, thee. No one loves like that. Nobody. If you love someone, you will not stand to see them destroyed. You will not let them carry on. Grace is the interceptor of destructive behaviour. Real love, real grace says, I have to intervene in this person's life to stop them destroying themselves. Well, just imagine you adopt a child who is a mess from a terrible background. Why do you adopt the child? You adopt the child because it is free grace. You don't adopt the child because they're a wonderful person. You adopt them because you love them. And you bring them in, you give them a roof and resources and so on. Now what do you do? Do you say, well, just carry on the way you were before? We don't care when you come in, whether you go to school or not. No, if you love them out of free grace, then real grace brings you in freely and holds your feet to the fire so you will grow. Thirdly, some cannot change bad habits because you're taking them to the law and not to the cross. Take your bad habits to the cross and you will change. Jesus doesn't say, go and sin no more and I, then I will not condemn you. No, the order is, I, will not, I do not condemn you, go and sin no more. And what he means by that, my dear friend, is Jesus says to you, get off the treadmill of effort. Get off the treadmill of trying to make yourself worthy in God's eyes. Get off the treadmill of trying to look so good. No, Jesus has taken your condemnation. Trust in him, not in your works, and get his free acceptance, his no condemnation stamp of approval. And then you'll find yourself being able to get rid of your sin and leave it behind. Then you will change. That is the order. For many years, there were things I wanted to change. And I would take them to the law. And what I mean by that, I would say, I have to change these things or I'm going to get it. And when I became a Christian, I would take it to the cross. And what that means is that I heard Jesus say something along these lines. James, these things in your life cannot come between you and me. I have died for them so they do not condemn you. I do not condemn you, but let us get rid of them. Look at what I have done for you. If you keep these things up, is that how you respond to my sacrifice? It's fellowship with me of such little value that you keep these things right in my face. Do you defile the heart I died to cleanse? Come on, James. I only want your beauty. I only want your purity. And that changed me. Do you hear that? You cannot change. You have the order reserved. Go and sin no more and then I will not condemn you. Oh, no. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. That is Christianity. If you say a word of peace to yourself, Jesus Christ will condemn you. If you say, I am condemned, Jesus Christ will say, you are at peace. If you do not name your sin, Jesus Christ will name it for you. If you say, I am all right, he will say condemned. If you say, I am condemned, then he will say, I have taken your condemnation. That is the heart of Christianity. Come to Jesus. He is waiting. May the Lord bless the word. Amen.